Welcome to The Birth Debrief, a safe place where women and families are invited to share their stories of pregnancy, birth and postpartum journeys. The Birth Debrief centers experiences that may be difficult for others to hear. We are lifting the lid on topics that aren't often spoken about. Loss, infertility, discrimination, obstetric violence, birth trauma and so much more. If you are processing any trauma or pain from your parenting or birth experiences, please consider whether listening to these stories may be right for you at this moment in time. Today's interview is the final episode in season one of The Birth Debrief. I'm taking a few weeks off from producing the podcast as the year draws to an end. I will still be doing interviews here and there, but they will be released in season two, which will commence in the new year. This final episode is a long one. I interview Stacey about her journey to conceiving when she had previously been told she wouldn't be able to, and how an induction ultimately led to her birthing her first child via C-section. Stacey speaks openly and honestly about her postpartum experiences and what she has learned about self-care in the process. Stacey ended up birthing both of her children by a C-section, and she speaks to how, even though her second birth was also an unplanned C-section, that it was still a redeeming experience for her after her first traumatic experience. This is such an important note to make, and as I say in the episode, it is not how we end up birthing our babies that matters and that informs how we feel about our birth experiences, but more so how we feel during our labour and how we are treated in the moments leading up to the birth. Are we supported, respected? Do we feel safe and secure and informed? All of these things are crucial items that mould how we feel about our births at the end of the day, irrespective of how they are actually birthed. Thank you for tuning in and listening to these family stories. I can't wait to share more with you next year. Thank you so much for coming on and having a chat with me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, I'm excited to talk to you. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) So did you want to take a moment just to introduce yourself and tell me a little bit about yourself and who's in your family and where in the world you are? Yeah, sure. So um, my name's Stacey. Um, I have a husband and a four-year-old four-and-a-half-year-old daughter and a 19-month-old son, and we are in Perth in Western Australia. So how was your first pregnancy? How did that come about? Was it planned or unexpected? Uh, Completely and utterly unexpected. Um, I'd been told, so I was 31 at the time, and I'd been told when I was about 23 that um, my, I had, um, been diagnosed with endometriosis and that I would, if I didn't have children, like when I, then, that I probably wouldn't be able to get pregnant because it was, the scarring was that bad. It was on my, um, bladder and my bowel and I'd had an operation to remove it, but they said that it would just come back over time and that, so if I didn't take that opportunity post-surgery, to have a baby probably wouldn't yeah so then when I got pregnant I was like excuse me <laughs> I was very surprised yeah so I, I lost that pregnancy um about nine or ten weeks yeah was sort of like a, a shock and then just as you're getting used to the shock of it um and then it was all over. It was a really long, drawn-out process to be told that I was having miscarriage. Um, it took about three weeks for anyone to say for certain. So because I was so early and I had 
really high um, HCG levels, but they could see the pregnancy, but they couldn't see a heartbeat. And they kept saying, oh, you're too early. You've got your dates wrong. How were you feeling at that stage? Did you think that you had your dates wrong or were you? did you know that you were miscarrying? I knew that I couldn't have my dates wrong because I hadn't seen my partner for two weeks and so there was no like the the window that they were saying oh maybe you got pregnant a bit later than you thought a week I was in New South Wales <laughs> it wasn't possible for that to be the case and so I kind of suspected like I had a feeling eventually I bled a lot and they kept they kept saying, oh, that, that can be normal, that can be normal, there's nothing to worry about. And, yeah, eventually a really nice radiologist came in when I went in for a scan and he sat down with me and he said, look, people are going to keep telling you that they can't tell you for sure, but you are, you're losing your baby. It, you've had four ultrasounds over the last two and a half, three weeks. We should have seen some growth, something should have changed and nothing's changed. So they're erring on the side of caution which is fine and you're welcome to like come back and have another ultrasound. But in my experience, this is what's happening. So that was actually quite a relief because it was so hard. I didn't know what to do because we hadn't told anyone, just like close friends and our parents. And it was just, yeah, it was really crappy. I can empathize with that because I feel like being in limbo is worse than being delivered bad news like yeah it's just nice to have something definitive yeah for sure not be maybe yes maybe no and then like your mind is left to wander and obviously like the situations we make up in our head are a lot worse than reality can be at times so yeah absolutely and then probably about a week after he told me that I got really bad cramps and I started to bleed and I went to my doctor and he sent me to the hospital And the hospital wanted me to have a curette and I didn't know that didn't have to do that. So I was told I spent hours in the emergency room waiting for someone to agree that that's what was happening again, even though we knew that's what was happening. And then they took me up to the uh, maternity ward and, and... put me in a bed and said, we want you to stay here and we're going to do a DNC in the morning. And I'm like, no, I'm going home. And the doctor came in and she said, look, if you go home, it'll be really traumatic. It'll be really painful. There'll be a lot of blood. It'll be very terrible. You're better off staying here, letting us do it. This is the best way. And like really made it sound like it was going to be like very gory and not great. And so... I went home, but I came back the next morning, but I actually lost the baby in the bathroom waiting in the pre-op area. Um, So (laughs) they still took me through and did everything, but as I was in so much pain and then I went to the bathroom and then passed the baby and I didn't know it was the baby and then all my pain was gone. Yeah. Do you feel like you you might have felt better had that have happened at, at home? home? Yeah. Yeah. Because I didn't know that was going to happen. No one said to me that might happen. Yeah. And so it's only been recently when I have been listening to and talking to other people about their losses and their miscarriages that I realised 
I know that sounds so silly because I sort of, I knew it was the baby, but I didn't think, oh, my baby just went in the toilet. Like now when I think about that, I think, oh, that's horrible. (laughs) I I just feel so like I got, didn't get to honour what was happening to me. Yeah. And I, so often in those situations, instead of just giving the mother and the family the the facts of what could happen, it almost feels like they're just trying to scare you into staying in hospital. Yeah, absolutely. And I felt like I like I had to go in, get it done, and then it's dealt with, and then you can move on. And it didn't work like that in my head, and my body didn't do that. I don't want to say that they were unkind because the I think in – from their perspective, they think they're doing the right thing. 100%. And I say this all the time um, in all aspects of birth in that I don't think that they have bad intentions. It's just part of the system. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. And so it was tough after that. Like we went home and it was just really shitty <laughs> for for a few months. And then we a- accidentally surprised. <laughs> We were doing all the things you're supposed to do to not get pregnant and we got pregnant again. <laughs> we got pregnant around the due date of the baby that we'd lost. So when I when I look back at it now, I think, oh, well, whoever you were, like obviously my daughter, you really wanted to be here. <laughs> that was the first pregnancy. And then when I got pregnant with my daughter, I knew, oh, no, I'm pregnant. Like I could feel it. I knew what it was this time. I was really scared that I was going to lose this baby as well. And it was a really awful pregnancy. Again, I started bleeding right from when I got pregnant. How did you feel at that stage? Terrified, honestly, because it wasn't a little bit of spotting. Um, At times I would stand in the shower and it would just run down my legs. Like it was like turning on a tap. It was, there was so much blood and No one ever said to me, oh, this could be what it is. They never – I went and got booked in with an OB straight away because I thought that's what you did. And because I was so scared, I thought, oh, I need someone to tell me what's going on. And so off we went to the OB and, yeah, that was probably my first mistake. And um, he ended up giving me an anti-D. The anti-D was at about six or seven weeks even though I don't think you're meant to have them. Like if you have rhesus negative, they usually give them to you at certain points, but that was quite early. And I end up having, I think I had a second one as well before 12 weeks. And then after that, they just said they're obviously not working. So no, you can't have any more. And I kept bleeding. I had my 12-week scan, the nuchal translucency, and they everything came back low risk and they couldn't see any reason why I was bleeding. So they just kept telling me to rest and not do anything strenuous. The OB did end up saying to me, like, if you're having a miscarriage, then that's what's happening. At this point in your pregnancy, no, we can't stop you from having a miscarriage. We can't stop it. It's just, it's going to happen if it's going to happen. And if it's not going to happen, then you'll continue to be pregnant. So I think, I think that was meant to be reassuring. I was going to ask, how did that make you feel? Because I've been through the exact same thing. And, and when I was bleeding, they kept saying, this is normal. And I'm like, is it? Like, this I don't doesn't know. feel normal. I personally didn't find it particularly reassuring. But 
it did didn't make me reassured in terms of um going to stay pregnant or not but what it did do was take a little bit of the pressure off that there was something I could do to stop this from happening that was good because he said you can rest and don't do anything strenuous he said or you could go run a marathon if the if you're going to stay pregnant you're going to stay pregnant and if you're not then you'll have a miscarriage he said I'd advise you to rest you probably don't feel like running a marathon but it's probably not at this point your body's doing what it's doing and so yeah it wasn't emotionally I didn't feel reassured but it did take the pressure off that I could do something to fix it so that that was nice and then um, I think it was about 16 weeks he prescribed me progesterone suppositories and they actually end up stopping the bleeding I stopped bleeding about 18 weeks so the whole time that was just scary because it wasn't like I said it wasn't like little bits of blood it was big gushes of blood every time and like if I was at work I end up having to carry extra knickers and an extra work skirt with me in case it happened at work because if it happened it just happened and yes so I just tended to if I was at home I'd just get in the shower and just stand there and then get into bed because there was nothing I could do and but yeah eventually it stopped and then <laughs> and then just when we were feeling better, we went for our 20-week scan. Oh, I forgot to mention. So because I'd been bleeding, the doctor had given me a referral to have an ultrasound. If I had a big bleed and I felt like I wanted to get it checked, he'd given me an ultrasound to just ho- um, form to hold on to. And just if I, I felt like that would reassure me that I could go and book myself in for an ultrasound. So that happened and I went and had an ultrasound. And in that ultrasound, because I think I was 17 weeks at the time, they sort of did a mini anatomy scan and they identified cysts in the baby's brain. I was just beside myself. So they were choroid plexus cysts. The ultrasound tech said to me, just take this report with you. When you go for your anatomy scan, tell them, show them the report. And But everything else looked fine. All the way along, I'd been showing one umbilical artery. There was no second artery. I think there's usually two arteries and a vein. Yeah. So you were already aware of that or you became aware of that? Yeah, no, I was. I was already aware of that. They'd identified that in the first scan, then confirmed it at the 12-week scan, and then when they did that scan at 17 weeks, they said the same thing, like there's still only one artery. But that is a variation of normal. No one was concerned about anything at that point. And then we went for our 20-week scan and we went to a women's imaging place that specialises in these kind of scans. They visualised the cysts in the brain again and the single artery and then they couldn't see the baby's I can't remember if it was her foot or her hand we didn't know she was a girl at this point either we um, didn't find out gender or sex during pregnancy so they couldn't identify I can't remember if it was a hand or a foot and it was just that the foot was I think it was a foot was tucked up behind her she was like all bent and they couldn't see it And so immediately they were saying she had a club foot or a shortened leg. And that combined with the choroid cysts and the single umbilical artery and my age instantly, apparently, like shot us into this particularly high risk category of carrying a baby that wasn't compatible with life is what they kept saying. Yeah. 
Now, I don't know if that's true. I've never really looked into it, but the, I, that's what she said, the doctor that was there. And they, after our scan, we were made, we got asked to wait in the waiting room. And then a doctor came out and she took us into this little room and she told us that all the, these things that they'd found or not found. And she said that we're, at, sorry, I just need to mention that my um, partner, he has a brother who was, um, I think he was stillborn. Right. And so I think because of that genetic on risk on his side and then my age, the things that they'd visualised and the things that they couldn't see, they said that, yeah, you are, even though we hadn't had any genetic testing done, so I'm not sure how they could actually know that, but those were all markers for apparently not compatible with life. And that was just... And then the next thing she said is you need to have a amniocentesis. And I was like, what? And what? Hmm. I knew, I kind of like, I, I knew what it was, but I didn't really understand what she was saying to me. Like I just, and she's like, we can do it for you now. And these are the risks, risk of miscarriage, risk of bleeding. Um, and I was like, I've only just stopped bleeding. Like literally a week ago, I stopped bleeding. I don't want an amniocentesis. This is how we do the testing. We need to know if your baby's compatible with life. You, you need to do this. And I'm like, I don't want to, to do this. And she just kept at me and at me for about 15 minutes. And then she left. Wow. And made us stay. Like I say made, like we could have gotten up and walked out. But you're sort of not in that mindset. You sort of just – we. I was – we were in sh- a bit in shock and my um, partner, oh, my husband now, it, he's not a very confrontational person. I am. Mm. In that moment, I was just like, what are you telling me? And um, this was supposed to be the bit where we were out of the woods because we'd stopped bleeding yeah. and I was still pregnant and the cysts were supposed to be gone and, yeah, it was just – and she came back and she's like, um, normally your doctor would – recommend what I'm recommending but I can't get a hold of your doctor and I said that's that's fine but I'm not I'm not having this done and she's like you're you're making a mistake you need to have this done wow <laughs> and I was just like we're leaving and she's like shove like not she's shoving pamphlets at my husband she I walked away we left and she rang me the next day to see if I wanted to book in and have it done oh my god how rude I know and I was like no thank you and just yeah. I did see my OB. He said to me, what would you do? And I said, well, we've talked about it. And I said, we wouldn't do anything. We would carry the pregnancy to term and see what happened when the baby was born. He goes, well, then you don't need to have that test done. Oh, I'm so glad that that happened for you. And I, I was having this conversation with my husband the other day. I was watching a debate on people debating whether or not they should get a certain ultrasound or any ultrasounds done during pregnancy. And I saw someone comment with the most accurate and apt piece of advice around this that I've ever seen. And it was basically, you've got to decide what you're going to do with that information. Because if you're not going to act on that information, then there is no point in having that information. Absolutely not. That just fits perfectly into your story because yeah. if you're not going to do anything, then there is no point in having it done, you know? No. And the risk was so high yeah. that something could go wrong. I mean, probably no higher than anybody else's, but for me, it felt high. 
um, it felt like an unnecessary risk and my partner was fully supportive of it. Like he didn't want me to have it done either. But at, he, at the end of the day he was like, this is your call because you have to have it done, your body. So like, obviously, I'm like, of course. <laughs> uh, that was probably the most comforting thing he could have said because he said it won't change if it won't change what you're going to do. He said it won't make any difference to what happens once the baby's born because if the baby does have some sort of genetic issue, we can't tell the severity of that when most of the time that's something you get to know unless it is truly not compatible with life. Most of those things, as the baby develops or doesn't develop, it's not going to change what you do immediately and there's not a lot you could do. Like it's not going to stop you from buying baby clothes. If you want to buy baby clothes, it's not going to stop you from getting a car seat. So so that he was really good about that and he just said, "Go, we'll do another ultrasound at 27 weeks. And he was also the person who said to us that the choroid plexus cysts, they shouldn't have actually told us about really because apparently they are also a variation of normal that happens when the baby's brain develops the their little bubbles of fluid they're not actually cysts like as in they're not growing in the brain so they can be visualized as the babies in some babies as their brains are developing the way the yeah it's a variation of normal and it's not something that you should be telling a patient about until you check it if it, if they're still there post 30 weeks or 27 weeks he said even he said even if I saw them at 27 weeks I would just send you for another ultrasound at 30 weeks and see if they were still there. And if they were still there, then there's something that we need to talk about. But he said should never have been told because there's, A, there's nothing you can do about it. If it is just normal, you've just stressed for no reason. And you had already had enough of that throughout your pregnancy anyway. Yeah. We went back at 27 weeks. We had another scan and she had both her legs and both her feet and both her arms and both her hands and no cysts in her brain. So... (laughs) I was so I felt so vindicated I was like I I really felt like finding that doctor that tried to and and waving that report in her face and being like you were wrong like you need to take a step back lady like I was so cranky yeah then she was breech oh was she breech did she turn she turned she was head down until like 33 weeks and then she turned and I was like oh you're kidding and at that point, my OB said, oh, we'll just schedule a C-section. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. Mm. I, I don't I don't want one of those. And he goes, oh, well, we'll see if the baby turns. And the baby's really big because he did ultrasounds in his room at every appointment. And he kept saying, oh, the baby's really big, measuring way ahead of its date. So you're looking at, like, if you if keep on track with this, growth you're looking at a nine or ten pound baby and because I'm quite short I'm only um, 156 centimeters so yeah I was about to ask how how big are you because that really has a bearing on it yeah I'm quite short and Mm. my partner's um, just over six foot four wow (laughs) (laughs) um, so big baby and breech okay so we waited 
and she turned back. Wow. And she stopped being breech and she turned herself and I felt her turn as well. I was like, oh, what was that? And then the next week when we went in, he's like, oh, the baby's not breech anymore. I'm like, ah, that's what that was. Um, but then because of my size and the baby size, he kept suggesting a C-section, which I kept declining. And then I think at 39 weeks, if you haven't gone by your due date, we'll do an induction. And I didn't know what an induction was. And he sort of explained it as in as that it was completely normal and that it just was a way of getting you to go into labour. There was never an explanation that it had higher risk of um, intervention in terms of like, uh, you know, forceps or vacuum delivery or a higher risk of C-section, no explanation that it would be more painful than going into labour naturally. And because my family all live in New South Wales, when we when he said that, I actually was excited because I was able to ring my parents and say, fly over because we're going to have the baby. And I was really excited. I look back now and I think, you're an idiot. <laughs> like, <laughs> you should have done more information, like done more research. But Hindsight's a bitch. But, and also by that point, I was so done with all the medical stuff I I put my head in the sand and I will say that I just didn't want to know. I didn't want – someone said to me, oh, you should do hypnobirthing. My sister did hypnobirthing and she had the most beautiful birth. I'm like, no, I'm not interested. I just want to get to the end of this pregnancy and have this baby and have it be alive. And that was the only thing I was focused on Yeah. because to, to me, even though we'd had all the ultrasounds that showed that everything was okay, all I could hear – and all my partner was thinking, we were both thinking this baby's going to be born and it's going to be dead. And because even though they visualised the hands and feet and even though the cysts were gone, because no one ever said, oh, you're not in that risk category anymore. No one directly said that. I, I think we sat down and talked about it um, before we got pregnant with our second one. And we talked about our daughter's pregnancy and we both said, you know, no one ever actually said to us, you're not at risk anymore. Like you can, you can like chill out. Like everything's great. They're so quick to put you into that category and make you feel fearful of, of everything that's going on. But then there's no information and no checking in with you along the process, you know, and seeing how you're going along, along the way. I think that sometimes our care providers just expect that what they know to be true we also know to be true. It's like they know, so they don't think that step ahead, oh, maybe I should let them know, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, it was just like oh, so exciting to know that we were going to have the baby. And because I was so scared, I thought I need I need my family here, like my husband's parents. Um, they don't live in Perth, but they are about six or seven hours from here. But they we're going to be here and I, I needed my parents like yeah I just knew that if something went wrong I couldn't sit in a hospital and wait like 12 hours for my parents to get here I just I can see how it would be really tempting you know I, like lots of women are tempted to know when they can have their baby and tempted by induction especially when you're not given all of the accurate information around it and maybe it would have been less tempting if you had have been given all of the facts around it you know 
and a lot of women look back on their experiences and blame themselves, just like you said before, like I, I look back and, and think how stupid I was, but you, it's not an option and it's not a choice unless you're given all the information and you just weren't, you know? No, not at all. And I wasn't even told how I would be induced. And so I showed up to hospital and I had no idea what was going to happen. He used a balloon catheter. It didn't put me into labor, not at all not even a little bit, and my I was not dilated at all. When they inserted it? No, nah, not even a little bit, and I wasn't, what's it supposed to be, soft, and I, nah, my cervix wasn't soft. And effaced, yeah. Nope, it was high, it was closed, and it was hard. Yeah, your baby wasn't ready. No, no, she, she definitely wasn't ready, and when I tell you how much she weighed when she was born – she was not ready. Put the balloon catheter in at like 8 o'clock at night and it came out about 5 o'clock in the morning because that's the idea, it's supposed to fall out when you dilate. And I think I dilated like two centimetres or one centimetre or something. And they were like, oh, that hasn't really worked. He came in and he checked me and he's like, right, well, we'll break your waters. And he tried to break my waters and he couldn't reach them. Yeah, at two centimetres. Yeah. <laughs> And I'm like, like I was like trying to get away from him. Like I was crawling backwards up the bed and screaming. Like it was so painful. And he goes, right, well, get an epidural and I'll come back and break your waters. Oh, my God. And I went, oh, I'd, I don't want an epidural, thank you. And he goes, oh, well, you need one so I can break your waters. Oh, so I, I can I can still cause this pain to you and this damage to you, but you just but won't, you won't, know. You won't be feeling it. Yeah. Yes. And then he just left. There was no discussion. There was no question. There was nothing. He just left. He walked out and the midwife just looked at me. And I had the most beautiful midwife. She was so wonderful. And I said to her, like, I really don't want one of those. And she goes, I can call an anesthesia or whatever, anesthesiologist, whatever they call them, who will put one in, but we can turn it down and you'll be able to walk. Like once he's done what he needs to do, it'll wear off and you'll be able to walk. And I was like, okay. So they did that and he came back and he broke my waters and there was meconium in the waters and I didn't know what that meant. Like I knew what meconium was, but I didn't know the implication for what they were going to use that for. And then... Um, I started having like a few contractions and he, I think, I don't think he came and saw me, but he called to check on my progress and apparently I wasn't going fast enough. So I, I, I don't particularly remember having, I don't remember them doing the Syntocin drip, but my husband said they gave me a little bit and that it was, it like gave me contractions and then they turned the epidural back up and I couldn't feel them. But it was really painful and then I just was like, I had no idea what was happening. How, like, is that what a contraction is supposed to feel like? Oh my God, this is so painful. This isn't stopping. And then um, the midwife said, well, we can turn up your epidural and then, you know, it won't be so painful. So we turned up my epidural and then I couldn't feel it. And so we just sat there. That was at lunchtime. And then we just sat there until 4.30 in the afternoon. We just were chatting. And they wouldn't let me eat, which I now realise that I was being prepped for surgery. I didn't know that at the time. And he came back and he's like, oh, you're only four centimetres. 
And I'm like, oh, that's great. He's like, no, you're not, you're failing. You've failed to progress. You're not progressing fast enough. Wow. And so we're going to take you down for a C-section. There's meconium in the waters when I broke your waters this morning. So that's dangerous for the baby. And you've had your waters broken for uh, what, however many hours it had been, which isn't in, I think about it now. And it was like, I think they broke my waters at nine o'clock. So it had been seven or eight hours. And they broke them. It's like, oh, uh, yeah, we've caused this issue for you, so now we have to intervene and fix the issue that we caused. Like, I was like, oh, okay. And that failure to progress or you failed to progress, that stuck with me for a really long time. Yeah, it's such disgusting language. It's terrible language. And I, yeah, I felt like I'd failed. Truly, that's what it felt like. And then I was so high on drugs. Like, that sounds terrible. But the stuff they gave me, I barely, I remember being wheeled down to surgery and I was really upset and I cried all the way down there. I got really upset because they strap your arm down. You lay down on the table and they strap one of your arms down with the IV in it. And I got really, emotionally I got upset because I was scared, but also I felt like I was being tied like what are you going to do to me yeah why do you need to tie my arm down like yeah yeah my brain couldn't process so many things happening all at the one time and I just couldn't and so I just laid there and the surgery itself was textbook and there was a pediatrician there and I didn't really feel anything a couple of tugs and they got her out and then they held her up and everyone's like oh it's a girl I couldn't see because they didn't hold her up high enough. And so, yeah, I couldn't see her. And then they took her straight over. And I just kept saying, is, she alive? is the baby alive? Is the baby alive? Because I couldn't hear her. She didn't cry straight away. She cried and my partner went over to see and he cut the umbilical cord that they'd already cut. And the paediatrician checked her and she was perfect. And she was 2.68 kilos. And I was just like, the next day I was like, all right. I was annoyed for many reasons and many more reasons that came in in the, like the months afterwards. But in that, like that particular 24 hour period, I didn't own a single thing that fit her because she was too small for tiny newborn and she lost 200 grams in the first 24 hours. So she was just a bit bigger than a bag of sugar. Oh, my goodness. And she was tiny. Like, she was just – and she – oh, my gosh, she was just so tiny. She was like a miniature baby. She just was so – she was just perfect. But, yeah, I don't really remember. I couldn't hold her when they put her on my chest. I couldn't hold her because I had the shakes from everything. And then my blood pressure dropped really, really low and I couldn't. Like I felt like I was going to vomit and my vision went blurry and I just felt awful. And so then whatever they gave me put my blood pressure back up. But they also, I don't know what they gave me, but they sent me home with oxycodone and that stuff makes you like off with the fairies or did for me. I had patches, endone, endone patches, and there's so many drugs, so many drugs and um, so I don't really I remember things because I've seen photos of them but I mostly don't remember much that's crazy yeah of the first probably 24 hours and because I had a c-section at 5 30 or no 6 30 she was born 6 38 um 
they didn't get me up until the next day. And so my husband changed her first nap. He changed all her nappies, well, the first 24 hours. So he changed her first nappy. He um, was the one who gave her a bath because even though I was up and walking after like the next morning, I was just so woozy because of all the, the pain meds that I I found it really hard to like be up, standing up and walking around. So um, <laughs> it sounds so bad because you go through your whole pregnancy, not even allowed to take like a Nurofen and <laughs> yeah. then you have a baby and they're like, here, take all the drugs. Yeah. And my milk didn't come in for like four or five days. And again, no one told us that that was because I'd had surgery and he prescribed something to make my milk come in, which I didn't want to take. And then I think on the fourth or fifth day, my milk came in. But in the meantime, she shredded my nipples because she was so little and my boobs were so big. <laughs> like her head was smaller than one of my boobs. So she couldn't latch onto my massive, like my big nipple and her tiny little mouth. And then we found out when she was about three months old that she had a lip and tongue tie, which was completely undiagnosed. And it was just like a comedy of errors. It was just so bad. Um, the upside, I will say the upside of being in the private hospital that I was in, they had a lactation consultant and they had a physio and they came to your room and the physio ultrasounded my nipples and healed up all the crack. Oh, really? Yeah, they wow. did some sort of ultrasound on it and it made the cracks heal so quickly. I've never heard and, of that before. Yeah, and... The lactation consultant, I met, I saw her while I was in hospital and then I had as many appointments as I wanted in the first six weeks back at the hospital at the maternity ward with her. That's really good. So that was really great because I was like, I failed. Like my pregnancy felt like a failure because it wasn't – everything felt like it went wrong. And then giving birth, I felt like I had failed and I'm like, screw this, I am not failing at this. Because um, we were having so many issues breastfeeding, um, I wouldn't give her a dummy because she hadn't latched on properly. So I just constantly had this tiny little baby attached to my boobs. And because she was so little, the smaller they are, they don't need very much, but more often. Yeah, it was just, it was really hard and I refused to to do anything else I wouldn't even they kept saying to me oh like we can take her to the nursery so you can have a rest and my I think at this point when I look back I can see that postnatal anxiety like it was probably prenatal anxiety and I was afraid to let her out of my sight in case something happened to her while I couldn't see her because if she wasn't with me I couldn't protect her and I know that everyone feels protective of their babies but having had another baby mm. I can see how different the way I felt with my first was compared to my second my parents and my in-laws they wanted to take her in her baby cot thing that they give you at hospital and take her and sit in the um, family area that they had and have a coffee and let me have a rest and I couldn't cope we had to go and get her my partner had to go and get her because I was so upset and I just thought that these were all normal things that normal people did. Yeah. And, or normal, such a bad word. 
I thought they were reasonable. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't let her out of my sight because I thought something bad would happen. That's not a reasonable thought. Like we persevered and like at different points my partner would have to sit with me and I'd hold his hand because that's how much it hurt to latch on yeah, and count to 10 and close my eyes and just do all the things. And I ended up breastfeeding her until she was um, two and a half. Oh, that's amazing. And I was so proud of that because I just was like, I did that right. I could do that. Uh, So many women feel that way, um, especially when they have a birth such as yours. Uh, I've interviewed so many women who say that. It's like breastfeeding is the final frontier for them. You know, it's the one thing that they have left to hold on to from their birth experience. And often if you have had a birth that went like yours, it's the hardest thing to do. Yeah, it was so hard. And I had the baby nurse, the child health nurse come out when we got home and I just cried at her because I'm like, they've given me all these things to take and I don't want to take them. And she goes to me, oh, well, you don't have to. And I went, oh, that never occurred. (laughs) She goes, no, just chuck them in the bin if you don't want them. They, like, you don't have to take them. I'm like, oh. We get stuck in the patient mentality and we We just think that uh, it's not an option and it's that old saying you don't have any options or any choices if you if you don't know them you know if you don't yeah. know your choices you don't have any and it's so That's true exactly and when right. someone hands you something they don't say to you oh here you go if you need it or you don't have to or you know like you can have a c-section or you don't have to you can choose not to you know if you aren't yeah. given that in black and white at that point in time, it doesn't feel like you do have an option, you know? No, not at all. And, yeah, especially, yeah, with the whole thing, I just – it never felt like I had an option. And so about six months postpartum, like I said, I look back now and I can see that it started like the day she was born or before she was born, but it got really bad and um, I wouldn't leave the house. I was scared of something happening to her or something happening to my partner. Like everywhere he went, he would have to call me and tell me that he was there, tell me that he was alive. (laughs) It must have been so intense for him. Like I don't know how – like I know how I felt and it was hard. It was awful for me. But to be on the outside of that and he didn't have any really – have any experience with mental health problems or really know what to do and he just – it must – it was awful. And we didn't probably realise that's what it was – and it manifested as anger for me. I was, I had no, if it wasn't my daughter, I didn't care what you thought or what you said. I just had no time. I was like short tempered and scared all the time. And it caused so many problems for, in our relationship. And it caused lots of problems with our families. And eventually, One of my girlfriends said to me, I don't think you're okay. I think you need to go and talk to someone. And I'm like, how dare you? Like, You don't have a kid. You don't know what you're talking about. And I went away and I thought about it and it like was like a bird, like a thorn in my side. It was like it irritated me. And the more I thought about it, the more I had to like admit that she was right. And so I went and saw my GP and he put me on a mental health care plan and then um, he referred me to a psychologist and I started seeing a psychologist and she strongly did not 
recommend me taking medication because um, that wasn't her way of doing things was that you need to deal with. Like she said, obviously some of my patients need to take medication, she said, but I think you need to talk about what's happened and talk about other things. And so, Well, that's the thing. Like sometimes medication is just band-aiding over what's going on and if you don't know why you're feeling the way you're feeling, then, you know, at some point you might want to come off the medications and all that stuff is just going to crop back up again. Crop back up again. But it's so good that you found someone who was able to give you that perspective because I don't feel like that's the norm. No, and I feel really lucky that we hit it off. Um, I to my GP, I don't want to see a man because I just won't take him seriously. Like he just won't understand. So I felt really lucky that who he referred me to, we just, we hit it off. Like if we'd have met down the street, I think we would have just been friends. We just had that real rapport and connection straight away. And I think that was a real, like I was really lucky with that. And so I saw her for about 12 months and it changed everything. And I honestly didn't think I was had a problem. And when I look back now, I can see how terrible it must like other parents don't constantly think their baby's going to die and they they don't think that every time their partner walks out the door that they're going to die and they're going to yeah it's just not a reasonable thought to have like I had no reason to think that but something had gone wrong and I just went into that survival mode and it was really good to see a psychologist I like I'm now Every time someone's not feeling great, I'm like, go see a psychologist. <laughs> I'm like team psychologist. But, yeah, she, she was amazing. And- There's such a stigma around it. I find that, you know, people are often very slow to bite the bullet to do that and it's almost a last resort when they're like, okay, like I've tried everything else or like I'm at rock bottom, I need to do something about it. But So what, what, what came up for you during your appointments? Did you – was it quick for you to come back to your birth story? Is that what you feel like or that you know now has kind of informed how you were feeling in your postpartum or what was it that came up in in your sessions that kind of um, explained what was going on in your head? There was a lot. (laughs) Um, There was a lot and um, it was to do with being out of control to particularly with my birth story and then like my previous history with relationships and my family history it was to do with I was not a part of my daughter's birth which is a weird thing to say when she came out of my body but none of the decisions that were made were mine she I remember her saying to me of course you feel the way you feel because you've been through a traumatic event and I had never thought of that word in relation to birth. When I thought traumatic birth, I thought stillborn or really preemie, sick babies. I didn't think about my birth. And she's like, well, what else would you feel if you'd been through all the things? Like it's completely reasonable that you feel the way you do, but it's not reasonable to want to continue to feel that way. We need to talk about it need to put some things into place um, to help you cope, like some coping mechanisms. I don't know if you've ever had anxiety, but for me, my brain, it's gone. Before I can get a hold of it, like my husband is dead in a car accident on the side of the road and nobody knows that he's in the car and the car's on fire and just because he walked out the door and then I heard a police siren. So it doesn't happen like that now. That's not 
but that's what it was like. That's crazy. I can't imagine living in that space and taking care of a baby at the same time. Yeah, it it's exhausting and it was just, I think, sleep deprivation added on top of that. Um, we had the other thing that really upset me after I had my daughter, possibly this was like our bad planning, I don't know, but my husband's parents came up just before we went into hospital and my parents flew in, I think the day before or two days before, and they stayed for two weeks or 10 days or something. And then everyone left at the same time. And my husband went back to work and I just was in shock. Yeah. I was like, don't know what to do with this little person. So I think that if I'd have been able to verbalize what I was feeling, maybe we would have got some more help. But they all thought everything was fine. And I remember like my mum and my mother-in-law thinking it was really funny and that I was like, you know, your typical clingy, new, worried new mum because I wouldn't let anyone hold the baby. And they're like, what do you think we're going to do with her, steal her? And they thought that was funny. And I don't think they were being mean to me. They genuinely thought it was funny. But in my head, I was like, maybe. And that I know my mum loves me and my mother-in-law's lovely. Like, I don't think that they were trying to be mean. But even right from then, it was just intense. When I had my son, it wasn't like that. It was so different. It was just a whole, and it put me off. I was convinced we'd never have another baby. Because of your experience with your daughter? Yeah. Yeah. Because of how her pregnancy went, I was I was really worried that I couldn't go through that again. Because I, the thing that made that survivable was that the only person I had to take care of was myself and I didn't know how I would look after her and be pregnant with a pregnancy like that. Yeah. And then obviously you would have been thinking that you would be facing a similar postpartum journey, you know, if you thought that that was normal, I guess, then you would have been expecting that that would have you would have been going through that again if you decided to have more children. Exactly. And when I got better, then the fear became triggering that anxiety and having that all come back again. And then how do I take care of two people if I feel like the world is ending? And so it was really hard decision to make. And then I was like, I said to him, oh, I think I want four kids, but also I'm terrified of having another baby and getting pregnant, so I don't know how we do this. And eventually we got to a place where I had done a lot of research and decided that the best way we could navigate this was to stay away from a hospital, stay away from an obstetrician and stay out of the system, and so like the hospital system, private, public, didn't matter, wasn't interested. And so we hired a private midwife because I don't know what it's like where you are, but here in Perth, you can't go to the birthing centre if you've had a C-section. They don't do VBACs at the birthing centre. I'm not too sure what the um, criteria is around VBACs in birth centres. Um Here, all of our birth centres here are attached to hospitals anyway, but I would err on the side of caution I would probably say that they wouldn't um, just because their criteria is normally quite strict. Ours is attached to a hospital too and no VBACs at the birth centre. The There's a particular hospital here I think who has a VBAC clinic and they um, like a special program, clinic might be the wrong word, I don't know, a VBAC program but you have to meet very strict 
guidelines to do with weight and you have to uh, um, agree to do all their testing, um, ultrasounds, diabetes, all the things that they want you to do, you have to do those. Otherwise, you're not eligible for it. I don't want to do that. And that really put me off. And um, then I knew that with my age, because at this point, like when we got pregnant again, I was 35. And so um, I think that's considered a geriatric pregnancy, if you will. Oh, my God. (laughs) I know. It's so bad. Isn't that a terrible, like, it would be bad enough if you were 70 and to be called geriatric, that would be bad enough. But, like, to be 35 and be like, you're geriatric pregnancy. I was just like, oh, dear. So (laughs) um, we booked in with a private midwife who I had found. I called around to a lot of midwives. Um, There weren't, there's not as many as I, in Perth. Like, there's, there's quite a few, but given that we're so isolated over here there weren't a lot of midwives who could like who could take um, a booking when I was due so um, we found our midwife and I met with her I met with her before I got pregnant because I wanted to have it locked in before I went away and tried to get pregnant so I rocked up to my first appointment she's like oh so we um are you, are you pregnant? I'm like, no, <laughs> not at all, but I'm doing my research because I'm not going to get caught out this time. And she was really supportive of a VBAC. She said, you know, there's no reason that you couldn't have had a vaginal birth and that four centimetres for the conditions that you were under is actually perfect. Like she said, you were dilating, you weren't failing, you were dilating. That's what they wanted you to do. They just didn't give you enough time. Yeah, and what I'm gathering from your first birth story, even before you ended up giving birth, was that your obstetrician had in his head that you were going to be a C-section all along, really. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I found out from one of the midwives when I was on the maternity ward after I'd had my daughter that for his um, inductions, he does a bowel prep for his patients right? so that they don't poo when they're pushing and I was never given a bowel prep so right from the start I feel like I was never given I was always yeah if I'd have managed to do it without like you know but then he would have gone with that but my body did not agree with the induction because my daughter was not ready to be born At what point did that realization come in for you? Did that come up, coming up, sorry, raise its head during therapy, or because I, I know that you said when we'll go back in time a little bit when you said in the first twenty four hours after your C section you were quite angry. Did that come up for you at that stage? Like, what were you angry about in that moment? Did you have the realization that your birth should have been different to what it was at that point, or did that kind of come up a little later? That came later, the realization at that, at the 20, at like originally, initially, my anger was directed at myself. And also, she was so tiny, and I was so upset because I guess you don't go into it thinking that it just isn't going to be a vaginal delivery. You just go in thinking, oh, well, that's how babies come out. They come out of vaginas. So, right. So, I, didn't get that and I didn't 
all the intervention and all the things that I said no to that I had done to me or done anyway. And then I had this, I know it sounds so superficial, but I had this perfect outfit that I had, it had taken me months to find a unisex because everything was either bloody pink or blue and it had taken me months to find this outfit and it didn't fit her. And I was so upset and I was so angry because it was the only thing I had left. Like, oh, look what I, like, I haven't been able to give birth to you properly. I haven't been able to carry you and have a, like, give you a, a safe pregnancy. But I got you this. It sound, I know I can hear that it sounds like such a um, disconnect between what was happening and what I was saying, like, oh, here's a perfect outfit. Like, she cared. She didn't care. <laughs> My, yeah, my anger was at me and my anger was about that suit, which is... Yeah, but at that point, it's not a, it's not about that anymore. It's exactly what you said. It's about the loss of control. You know, it wasn't like you were actually mourning the fact that she couldn't wear that suit. It was just like, you know, like, oh, you're angry at the whole situation, you know, and that's just how it came up for you. Yeah, and that anger just got more and more red hot like it just became a festering wound of anger and yeah originally for months it was directed at myself because I was the one who'd failed it never occurred to me to be angry at anybody else because as far as I'd been told I was the one who was supposed to give birth it wasn't until I came out of that initial like first six months and like you start to be a human again and you get a little tiny bit more sleep and they become a little tiny little bit less dependent on you and the less dependent like the more the older she got the the more I was able to focus on things outside of just her survival and yeah that's when I started reading books and looking things up and I started listening to podcasts and I started following I um, birth people like um, midwives and doulas and um, things like that on Instagram and the more reading I did, the more I realised I got screwed and that's what led me to think that if I got myself a private midwife, I would be able to avoid that. Unfortunately, in Western Australia, midwives over here, private midwives can't, um, I believe, well, my midwife, she couldn't do a home birth for a VBAC. Right, okay. That's definitely different in New South Wales. Yes, so (laughs) that was really upsetting. But she was um, connected to a hospital where she had um, right to practice and the idea was that I would labour at home and when we were ready, we'd transfer, like we'd go to hospital, but she would be my midwife inside the hospital. Yeah, I might just explain that a little bit for anyone who's listening. A private midwife is a midwife who they run their own practice outside of the hospital system. They're still bound by certain rules and regulations, obviously. Um, I'd say that most of the jobs they attend are home births, but they do also attend hospital births. Generally, if a a private midwife doesn't have practicing rights to a specific hospital, they can go with you 
while you birth in the hospital, but they can't actually treat you. You still have the midwives at that hospital treating you. But if your midwife has practicing rights at a certain hospital, you go with your midwife to that hospital and and they're able to do everything for you in the hospital and not just support you. Yes. And so that felt good. That felt like a good fit for us. A happy medium if you can't have a home birth. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I, I didn't mention it to her, but I sort of said to my he was my he's my husband now. I said to my husband, I might just stay here at home, and he's like, "What are you talking about?" And I said, "Well, I might like." So the way it was explained to me is that when I went into labour, she'd come and check on me, but she doesn't stay with you until you're in really active labour. She comes and she goes and she comes and she goes because the idea is she's not far away. And you just do your thing. And then when it's time, she will come and, um, excuse me, she will check, not vaginal examination, but just talk to you, monitor you, check the baby. When it's time, when she thinks we need to go, we go to hospital, then we have the baby. And I kept saying to him, I'm just not going to call her. I'm going to have an oopsie-daisy accidental home birth. And he's like, you are crazy. That is not happening. He was not on board with that. I was going to ask about, I know that your your progression towards um, deciding to birth outside of the system made a lot of sense to you, but often husbands and partners can be left behind a little bit and the progression to getting up to speed on why you feel that way can often come a little bit delayed. Yeah, he was he was not on board with that. We'll say that doing my research made me more empowered. It made me realize that I could say no. And when and that's I work previously have worked with doctors in the medical field and I'm not medically trained. I've worked in admin but dealt with a lot of in hospitals and private practice GPs. There is this real attitude that doctors have that their word is final and because I've worked with them, I never was one of those people who would do what the doctor said and not question it. Outside of being pregnant, I would question everything. When when I was pregnant, I was just like, okay, no worries, I'll do that. And I thought pregnancy was different. I thought giving birth was different. I thought that you had to agree because it wasn't just your body but you have the right to say no and you can you can you can tell them to not touch you you can tell them that you don't want what they're doing and you can you can even say I don't want you to be my doctor please leave the room I don't give you permission to touch me or whatever you you have every right to so we started trying we got pregnant the first time like the first month which we weren't expecting my pregnancy was wonderful what a redeeming experience after your other two pregnancies it was so calm and my midwife she was just I loved her so much um she was so calm and she would come to my house I think almost all of my appointments were at my house and she would listen to the baby and she would check the baby and again we didn't find out boy or girl she would ask me, do you want to do your 12-week scan? And I said, no, thank you. And then she's, do you want to do your 20-week scan? I was like, oh, yeah, I'll do that one. I know that there will be people who think this is irresponsible, but I didn't have any other ultrasounds. I had a dating ultrasound and a 20-week scan. That was it. I didn't have any other blood tests. I didn't have any genetic testing done. I declined my diabetes test because I didn't have any symptoms and baby was measuring normal, don't have a family history 
And honestly, it just felt like an unnecessary thing to do. Yeah. Well, like I said to you before, like if you already know in yourself that you're not going to do anything with that information, then it doesn't matter. No. It doesn't like there's no point in doing it, you know. This was the other thing they used against me when I – or not – that sounds really – anyway. That's probably true. (laughs) Yeah, it probably is. I was going to correct myself. But it was used against me. I tested positive to – is it the strep? Strep B. Yeah. Mm. When they did the swab when I was pregnant the first time with my daughter, I tested positive to that. And so the drip that I remember was for antibiotics. I was on antibiotics – from like lunch, like from lunchtime the day she was born. And that's what I remember. And my husband's like, oh no, they actually had two things going at once. And that's why you got all those contractions. And I was like, oh, okay. So I refused to be swabbed. My midwife was completely supportive of every decision that I made. And she said to me, you know, you could test positive for that today and negative for that next week. Yeah. And then, did they tell you that the first time around, that it was transient? No, no not at all. Yeah, I, I had, I think I had one little scare where I, I don't know if it was food poisoning or what it was, but I got really, really sick, um, like gastro like vomiting and um, gastro sick um, and then it triggered uh, contractions and so I thought I was um, about 15 weeks. It could have been like, uh, what, did she, what did they say, an irritable uterus and that because I'd been going to the toilet so much because I'd had food poisoning or whatever bug I'd pick, I never figured out if what it was but that that could have triggered it and so it wasn't actual it would the baby was fine I went and had an ultrasound they're like there's nothing wrong and so oh sorry so I had three ultrasounds and that was just because I was so um sick and dehydrated and she's like let's just get baby checked and then if baby's fine then you just need to rest and you need to get some fluids into you and then and that was the only thing that was the only thing that went wrong it was such a pleasant pregnancy and I loved my tummy this time. Like I liked being pregnant with my daughter this time around because nothing was wrong. I would just like stand in front of the t- mirror and rub my tummy and I constantly had my belly out. Oh, you were able to fully enjoy it. Yeah, I loved being pregnant and both time um, and this time, sorry, I never felt that due date looming because we didn't want people descending on us. We didn't tell anyone our due date. Yeah, it doesn't go down well with family. It really doesn't. They really, my fam, my mum's like, well, if it's not a big deal, why wouldn't you just tell us? And I'm like, towards the end of my pregnancy, I got a bit worried because I had to go to the hospital that my midwife was affiliated with and have an appointment there so that they had me on file. And I was really nervous about going there because of just I just didn't want to be in the hospital but I actually had a great appointment I built it up so much in my head and then I met with a doctor there and she was lovely and she was fully supportive of everything I said to her I want because I discussed all these things with my midwife and so I had it noted on my hospital file that I didn't want to be cannulated, I didn't want vaginal examinations, I refused constant or continuous monitoring, 
um, I didn't want to be um, offered pain medication. And she, the I went in there expecting to be met with resistance and this particular um, doctor that I met with, she asked me questions to see if I understood, which I thought was a bit, well, obviously I understand because I'm telling you. But anyway, she grilled, like not grilled me, but asked me lots of questions to make sure that she felt that I understood and then she signed off on it all. Yeah. And so that was great. And, yeah, then I got a bit stressed because I was worried that the hospital might try putting pressure on me if I went over my dates because they knew I was attempting a VBAC. And so I started getting acupuncture done, which was wonderful, wonderful for my nerves. <laughs> and also um, just the practitioner, she was so lovely. And I went into spontaneous labour. My waters broke at home. I was in bed and they popped and then I lost my mucus plug. This, so this was all on Anzac Day, 5 o'clock in the morning on Anzac Day. But at that point, I bet you would have felt like you've already won, you know, like yeah. I've already done it. It's only just yeah. begun, but I've already done it. <laughs> Absolutely. My body did it all on its own. I was 40, almost 41 weeks. And um, yes, and then once my mucus plug came out, I started having contractions that seemed pretty regular. My midwife came and checked me. Everything seemed fine. Um, she was happy with where baby was sitting. She was happy with how I was coping. We rang our birth photographer and to, or messaged our birth photographer and told her she came down because she wanted to see. So she came down and then everything was just really slow. And so she ended up saying, I might come back when things get going. And she is so beautiful too. So I just had, I just felt really safe and really supported. And because it was an, Every everybody has different things that makes them feel comfortable and safe. But for me, um, hearing sport on the TV, I don't have to be watching it. It just reminds me of being at home when I was a kid with my grandparents and my parents. And so because it was Anzac Day, there was AFL on the TV. My husband's sitting on the couch eating pizza, watching the football, and I'm just sitting there on my ball. Curtains are closed. It's all dark. And my daughter was there and was just so Aww. great. And it felt so good, like even now, like I get, because it just felt so good. It just felt so natural, like the way it was supposed to be. Yeah. How were you responding to the pain? Were you shocked by how different it was to the pain that you experienced the first time around? Absolutely. I'd read the hypnobirthing book and I had done some hypnobirthing meditations and watched a lot of videos online my acupuncturist had given me some tips for dealing with the pain and she'd said um showed me some acupressure points where if you press into them when you're having a contraction it I guess it must be a bit like the tens machine and it diverts the the mind so I was sitting there with a little comb in my hand with this little comb on all my acupressure points in my hand and it was bearable and the difference was that when the contraction finished, it was finished. It wasn't back to back. There was space yeah, and there was time. And my daughter, she's standing behind me rubbing my back and I have some really beautiful – I'm so – I will always be so grateful that my birth photographer came when she did because we end up having to transfer to the hospital and my daughter couldn't come with us. And I just have these really beautiful photos of her sitting with me while I'm in labour 
having a contraction and she's standing there holding my hand and rubbing my back and they're just the best thing ever. Like, yeah, she was amazing. She is amazing. And her name's Sarah as well. <laughs> oh, is that Sarah Bresser? Yeah. Oh, yeah. amazing. She's just amazing. Like, if you're in Perth and you need a birth photographer, she's she beautiful. Is just, oh, she's just the best. And she was so calm and she was just such a good energy to have around. And what she did for us after my son was born was just yeah, so eventually my midwife came back to check me. I think it was about 5 o'clock and she was a bit worried because baby's head hadn't descended down as far as she would have thought considering how steady my contractions were and how they'd been going all day. She was just a bit concerned. Um, and so she said to us, look, I think we should go to the hospital, to the assessment unit, and I just want to put the trace on and make sure baby's fine. And if baby's fine, excuse me, then we can make a plan from there. The downside of not telling anyone when we were due and not wanting to tell anyone when we went into labour was that we didn't really have anyone to watch our daughter from our family. So my girlfriend came over to watch her, but we felt really concerned for my daughter that she have that continuity. We went to the hospital, midwife did the trace. And she was quite happy. She said, baby's fine. Everything's fine. She says, you're having really strong contractions. And I hadn't had a vaginal examination at this point. She said, I think we should try and get on labour and delivery. We're here now. Let's just stay. And I was like, okay, that made sense for us because then we didn't have to go home. And then if we needed to leave again, find someone or bring Molly with us. And so we, we were okay with that then. The doctor who was on duty would not admit me to labour and delivery until I consented to a vaginal examination. Oh, my God. And they're not compulsory and he had no right and I refused. Yeah. And he sent in two female registrars to try and convince me to have a vaginal examination and I sat there and I listened to them and then I said no I'm not having a vaginal examination my waters have already broken I don't need you to do that because you are going to be increasing my risk of introducing bacteria and they're like oh I'm like yeah that's right now no (laughs) at that point my midwife said you can go home and we said we told her how we concerned about our daughter not having anyone to watch her if we had to come back in the early hours of the morning and in hindsight I probably shouldn't have been so worried about her but I was and she said oh we can stay she said they change shifts at 11 30 so we can just wait and she said I looked at the roster and I know who's coming on next and that doctor will not do that that doctor will admit you and so we stayed my husband got really concerned because the thing that my midwife was concerned about happening because baby hadn't descended was cord prolapse and once he heard that he got in that mindset where he was he didn't want to leave the hospital and I sort of was like I don't want to upset my daughter but maybe we should go and he's like oh, maybe we should stay. I feel like if we'd have had somebody else with us who could have seen all the things and said, go home, you're being overly concerned about something that doesn't matter, or if we'd had my mother-in-law looking after my daughter, we would have just gone home. And so, you know, that's on us. We we made the decision. I wouldn't have had to make that decision if someone hadn't have tried to hold me hostage over putting their hands inside my body. Like it was 
completely unnecessary. Yeah. So we waited. And when the next doctor came on shift, he took one look at me and said, go to the labor ward. Why are you even still here? Yeah. So we got over there about one o'clock in the morning. He came and checked me at three. I don't know what time. It was a few hours. We'd been there a few hours. We'd been for a walk. One of the hospital midwives, she ran me a bath and I got in the bath. It was so nice. It really helped with my pain. It was so good. And um, then we got out again and he came and talked to me and he said, look, I know you've declined a vaginal examination, but I really feel like at this point, I really feel like I would like to do one if you are okay with that. And he's like, you know, your water's broke earlier this morning. Like it's been a full day. I don't want to do anything unnecessary, but I kind of need to see how you're progressing because you seem like you are in established labour, but you're a VBAC and the hospital has policies around VBACs about how long and all of these things. And it seemed like a reasonable thing and he wasn't aggressive. And I think if I'd have said no, he would have just walked away. He wasn't going to argue with me. And so I'd already talked to my midwife and she said, it's up to you. You probably don't, if you don't want to have one, don't have one. She said, it's up to you. And so he did a vaginal examination and I was only two centimetres dilated. I was just like, what? the hell like what the hell at that point he said just keep doing what you're doing if you feel like you want to move things along I think were the words that he used we can talk about giving you a a Pitocin drip he said just see how you're going but there's also a ceiling on how long you can be with your waters broken before the hospital is going to want you to have antibiotic we got back up and we walked and we walked and then I got tired at that point. I'd been awake since 5 o'clock the previous morning and I said, I just need to lay down. So we laid down and I tried to rest, but obviously I was still having contractions. Then he obviously went off shift and the next doctor came in and then you start again. Every time they change shifts, it's not good enough that their colleague has said this and written this down They want to do a vaginal examination. They want to talk to you about the risks and the pros and the cons and this and that. And and the other thing we didn't know was the hospital policy on how long my midwife could be with us. Oh, really? I wasn't aware of that either. Mm. So at the hospital that we were at, she can only be um, working for 12 hours and then she has to leave for 12 hours. Wow. So she can stay as a support person, but she cannot stay as your midwife. Yeah, so she can't practice there. Yep. Oh. And I didn't know that. And Mm. now I was actually, my husband and I were actually talking about this last night because I said to him, do you remember that being, like that being information that we had? And neither of us specifically remember being told that. And it's not like it would have made. I feel like if we'd have had that information as well, we probably would have opted to go home because if we'd have left, then next time we come back, it starts again. Her 12 hours starts again, if that makes sense. 
like you said, hindsight's wonderful, probably that would have been the best option because then she would have been with us. But we didn't really know that. The backup midwife that she worked with had been called to a birth so she wasn't available to come to the hospital and then the backup backup midwife had taken a job and so she wasn't available either so then I got a hospital midwife and there's nothing wrong with the hospital midwives it's just not sort of what we went in there thinking and all of this sort of happened really quickly yeah and you weren't aware but the, the whole premise of hiring a private midwife is so that you have that continuity of care and so that you have someone in your birth space that you know and that knows your backstory story and you don't have to keep reaffirming what your wishes and rights and wants are you know that it's just that the midwife who you have with you would know all of that and you're comfortable with them and you've hand-picked them yeah so it was a bit it was it was a lot disappointing and I could feel that she was disappointed for us as well and I know that she wasn't happy about it and I know that it wasn't in her control that's the hospital's policy and to have practicing rights, you have to buy, abide by their rules. So it was, yeah, not ideal. And then I, at that point, decided, right, I don't understand what's happening here. Maybe, maybe I do need the pitocin because they kept saying, you're contracting, but maybe you're just not contracting enough. And my contractions had died off um, as the sun came up, <laughs> which is quite normal. Mm-hmm. Which I know now, I didn't know that before, I didn't know that at the time, they had died off. And so because they died off, I was like, fine. But it was my midwife actually talked to the hospital midwife before she left. And she was like, not a lot, just a little bit. Just, she just needs a smidge, like just a, and if she says turn it down, turn it down. If she says take it out, take it out. She said all those things to the midwife, uh, the hospital midwife. I, I heard her talk to her. And then my midwife left and she just kept turning it up. And I'm saying, I can't cope with this. You need to turn it down. No, no, no. It's better if we just turn it up. Oh, God. And every hour and a half or two hours, she was turning it up. Oh, my God. So by about three o'clock, I was just... I was inconsolable because the other thing that they kept trying to put on me was the monitors. And so you can't wear those in the shower and you can't move around like very much because every time you move, they move and then they lose the trace and then they're like, oh, this baby, the baby, the baby. Yeah. And they found me some that you could wear in the shower. But by that point, it was just, what was that? So that was three o'clock in the afternoon. So that was 34 hours I'd been awake for at that point. And my husband too, we'd been up for 34 hours. It was horrendous. And I just, I couldn't, I couldn't deal with the pain anymore. And I couldn't breathe properly and I couldn't stop crying and I just felt really vulnerable and really exposed and all the curtains were open, all the lights were on, the door to my room was open and the midwife that was with me brought a student midwife in with her. And I was just like, I don't know what the fuck is going on. Sorry. Uh, no, you're al- you are allowed to swear. <laughs> I was so, I was like, what the fuck? Like actually that's what I said to my husband, what the fuck is going on? Like I don't understand what's happening now. And he's like, I kept saying to him, I want an epidural. And he was doing the thing I told him to do. He's saying, no, you don't. This is, You can get through this. And um, I just, I couldn't, like, I just was so tired and it hurt so much and it hurt so much more than the contractions I'd been having. And she just kept turning it up and it didn't matter 
that I said turn it down and my husband said turn it down and she wouldn't turn it down. And um, so I asked for an epidural and my husband kept saying, you don't want one. And I just looked at him like, I can't do this anymore. Like I just, I can't, I just need it to stop. Like if I can, if I can get a rest, then maybe I'll be able to focus and then do the rest. Yeah, that's so hard. And so they got someone to come and give me an epidural. My husband went to get something to eat once I'd had the epidural put in. And then the midwife came in and she's like, oh, you need to have a catheter now that you've got an epidural. I'm like, okay, no worries. And probably this was probably the most upsetting thing that happened on for me personally as a human so she started to put the catheter in and then the student midwife she told the student midwife she could help and she started to do the catheter door open I just no curtains drawn no nothing door open legs up in the air spread wide open as they have to be to do a catheter and then she goes oh you have an allergy because I have a latex allergy. We need the non-latex tubes or whatever it was. And so the student midwife got them out and she started to like get herself ready to do it. And I had said that was fine because she was actually really nice, much nicer than the midwife. And um, she started to do it and the midwife went crook on her and she dropped it on the floor. And so then they had to find get another one, but there wasn't another one in the room. So she sent the student midwife off to find one and so I'm sat there for 10 minutes with my legs up in the air, wide open. I know I was having a baby but I wasn't having a baby right then and I just – and not draped, not covered, nothing. Like I just felt so humiliated and that's not a normal thing that I – like I'm not not shy about like we're a naked house. Our kids are always naked – and, you know, knock on the door, don't just walk in. We're, like I don't have a problem with nudity. I don't have a problem with being naked. I, I like my body. But just to be – I couldn't move because I'd had the epidural. So my legs were like stuck. I couldn't move my own legs. And then the student midwife didn't come back fast enough. So the midwife left. And I was just sat there by myself. My husband wasn't there. And, um, yeah, just – sat there and I was just like this is the most humiliating I obviously am not a human to you because you wouldn't walk out and leave a person like that yeah they just get so stuck in their own world yeah and it was it was awful and then the student midwife came back and then the other midwife came back and they finally found one and then the she wouldn't let the student midwife do it anyway because she'd gotten so annoyed and she did it and I think she must have done it wrong because I had lots of um, nerve pain issues. I've had a lot of, I don't know what the pain's not the right word, but well, no, initially it was pain and now just sensitivity issues since then. So ongoing. I told my midwife and she's like, you're probably just really, urethra is probably just really irritated if they took a couple of goes to get it in and they didn't do it properly they've probably just and even now like I'd never had an issue in like with that kind of I never had urinary tract infections or anything before and now like if I get a bit sick I get sore around my urethra and it's really strange and my my son's 19 months old yeah it doesn't sound coincidental to me (laughs) no not to me either and I remember telling my acupuncturist and she's like also 
um, if you haven't dealt with the things that have happened, like you could be having physical pain connected to your emotional pain. So we did lots of acupuncture for releasing. I haven't completely dealt with everything, but yeah. And so then I slept. Once they sorted that out and my husband came back, I slept. They, the midwives changed shift and I got a beautiful midwife and she came in and she looked at my notes and she spoke to the other midwife and then she looked at me and she talked to me and she's like, how about we just close the curtains and you have a sleep? And she turned all the lights off and she just sat there with me. And I slept for like an hour. And when I woke up, I asked her to check me and then the doctor that I'd initially met with when I came to the hospital she had seen that I was in the labor ward and so she came and checked me like checked in with me to see how it was going and she poked her head in the door and the midwife told like uh like spoke to me and I said oh the midwife's just checked me and I, I don't think I'm very dilated and she offered to check me and she offered to put the prong thingy on the baby's head so that I could take the monitors off but at that point I'd had the epidural already so it seemed redundant and um, she said to me when they come in to talk to you in a little while because she wasn't my doctor she was just she was just on the ward she said they're probably going to talk to you about the fact that they don't like to give Pitocin for more than I can't remember how many hours she said for VBACs because of the potential for rupturing your scar, putting stress on the scar. She said, you can take it out and see what happens. She said, I'm not telling you what to do, but you've been in late, you've been at this for some time. She said, I think the baby's posterior and that's why you're in so much pain and not progressing. Had they told you how far along you were, how far dilated you were? Four centimetres, five centimetres, yeah. No, five centimetres. When the midwife checked me, I was four centimetres. When the the doctor came in eventually about 5.30, he checked me and I was five five centimetres. Then he did an ultrasound and he said, baby's posterior and even though you're dilating, your cervix is still really high and it's not softening he said the baby's posterior and the head is turned so instead of being head down his head was sort of wedged into like my hip Mm. so he was coming down at an angle yeah and he said we can we can give you more time but I'd already talked to the other doctor and I said to my husband, they're going to tell me that they want me to have a C-section. And he goes, well, you're not having one. And because he was, he knew how I felt about this. And I said, I said to him, yes, I am. And he looked at me and he was so upset. Like for me, he was more upset than I was. I said to him, babe, if it's, if the baby's posterior and this is like, I've been at this for a full day and a half. And I am exhausted. And even if I dilate, like, it's going to be a shit fight. And my midwife can't come back until 6.30 or 7 o'clock tonight. I said, between now and then, that seems, this was at 4, 4.30. I said, but just, I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it because I've tried. And if they come in and they tell me the baby's posterior, that's the case. I'm going to tell them that I agree to have a c-section and he was so angry because he knew how much I didn't want to do it 
But I was so exhausted and I knew that it would be hard and I also knew that if they came in and said, baby's in position, you're just progressing slowly, I would have just waited. But I could feel that he – I know that sounds so strange, but I could feel he was stuck. I could feel that he wasn't in the right place. And every time – before I'd had the epidural, every time – I had a contraction, I could feel that he was going the wrong way. And he was like, I just don't think he was going to go the right way. And I had no wish to have pesiotomies and vacuums and forceps and then still be told you've got to go to theatre and have a C-section. Yeah. I mean, everyone has their line in the sand and at some stage you've just got to be honest with yourself about what it is, like what, what your goal is, you know. Yeah, exactly. And I think I was happy with my decision and they came in and I think they expected a fight and like they came in, they did the ultrasound. He explained very thoroughly that the baby was head turned and posterior and that's why my labour was painful and wasn't progressing. He said I was five centimetres but then he said, you know, that's five centimetres but your cervix is really it's not softening, it's still up high. He's like, the baby's not descending the right way, so it's going to make it hard for this. Like, you, we can, we take the, we have, we want to take the syntocin and turn it off. And I'm like, that's fine, do that. And he said, but we can wait. My opinion is that you will probably end up in theatre anyway. And I said, okay, let's do a C-section. And he started to talk again. And then he, like, you could see the disconnect, like, that he went, he was starting to try to tell me that I should go for a seat. And then he went, oh, oh, okay, well, let's get that organised then. And I was like, okay, let's do that. And then um, we rang the birth photographer and Sarah made a mad dash to us and she got there just in time. My husband went to move the car and he they came to get me and he was like in the elevator going down to move the car and I had to ring him and say, come back, quick, come back. And, um, yeah, then we went down and he was really stuck and it felt like they, they tried to use forceps to get him out because of how he was wedged in there and he ended up with a black eye, like a big puffy eye, but he was really stuck. Like I had had a previous C-section so I understood that there was some pulling and tugging but they were they were a long time delivering him between starting the procedure and having him out there was a lot of pressing and pushing and maneuvering and my belly was so bruised because of where he was wedged in and when that like after the fact that made me feel really good about my decision because I trusted my body and I listened and I could have gone, no, I want a vaginal birth and that's what I want and I don't care at what cost and I might have gotten one. But my like it wasn't a decision I made in my head. It was a decision I made in my body and when they had so much trouble getting him out, I felt, ah, oh, that was the right decision, like you've done the right thing. And so, and again, we didn't know what we were having but I told them like, I want delayed cord clamping. I want him on me straight. I want the baby on me straight away. I want you to lower the curtain when you pull the baby out because I want to see 
what the baby is before anybody says anything. And so they lowered the curtain and they held the baby up and there was the fattest baby I'd ever seen. He was so big compared to his sister and there's just this penis in my face and I was like, it's a boy. And I was so shocked because I was convinced I was having another girl and he was nearly four kilos. So he was a lot bigger than his sister and he was so chunky, like he's this fat little face. And um, they they delayed clamping his cord not as long as I would like but they did they did say to me we haven't cut his cord yet okay now we're cutting his cord and as soon as they cut his cord they did check him but they didn't wrap him and clean him they put him straight on me and um, Sarah had given her camera to the midwife and so not supposed to take photos of the birth Um, the midwife was not supposed to but she did and I have this fabulous photo of them pulling him out of me it's such a beautiful photo and um, they put him on me and I just again um, my blood pressure dropped again but the anesthesiologist was so good he's like I'll just give you a little bit and we'll see if we can get your blood pressure up I don't know what it was and the shaking wasn't as bad the anesthesiologist was so nice he kept talking to me the whole time and the doctor who'd done my um, epidural originally, she, um, I don't know how other people would feel about this, but I felt really fine with it. She came, she heard that I was in theatre and she'd just finished with someone that she was with. So she poked her head in and she's like, have you had the baby? And it was like, yeah, we got a boy, we had a boy. And she's like, oh, that's so exciting. It felt like such a different atmosphere. Yeah. Like when I was in um for them to check my epidural and everything before they took me into theatre. Everyone was so kind to me and they were so um, happy and they were so reassuring and um, it was just a completely different experience. Like my first, when I had my daughter, it was silent and quiet and nobody talked to me and it was just like it was happening to me. It wasn't happening and I, I wasn't like I could have been anyone, anything. They could have been practicing for all the attention they gave me, like I could have been a dummy. And this time, like the doctor kept saying to me, baby's really stuck. You're just going to have to, you're going to feel a lot of pressure, like a lot of pushing and a lot of tugging. Like they were continually talking to me. They were keeping me involved in the process. The anesthesiologist was chatting to me the whole time and chatting to my husband. And I was like sort of crying because obviously there was still a part of me that was like, this was supposed to be my vaginal birth, my VBAC. Yeah. And so there was a little bit of sadness, but I had to actually say to my husband, he's like, this isn't right, this isn't supposed to happen. I had to say to him, stop it because I've made this decision. Nobody's forcing me to do anything and you need to be on board with this because otherwise you are going to ruin this for me (laughs) and you're not ruining this for me because everything else has gone the way I wanted it to go and I can't control everything. So even though it was a C-section and it wasn't what I had planned for and it wasn't what I had hoped for, the midwife that was with me when he was born was one of the most beautiful people I've ever met, even though she wasn't the midwife that I had booked in with and she took such beautiful care with us and I was never separated from my baby not once when I couldn't hold him he went to my husband and once um they were finished and I felt better 
and I didn't feel out of it and I wasn't off my face on drugs. They put him on me and he was on me when I was wheeled to recovery. Yeah, and he stayed with me the whole time. My daughter stayed with me too, but I don't even remember recovery. Like I have no recollection of it, but it must have happened. And he latched on in recovery and he knew what he was doing. And he just went for it. And he has he has not stopped breastfeeding since he was born. Like he just he just <laughs> he just he knew what he had to do and he did it. And he was just such a chunk to hold as well. Like he was just so substantial. He didn't seem it didn't seem scary. And I guess second baby, it feels different too. And I think because I went into labor spontaneously, because I labored without any intervention for for 24 hours or whatever it was um I felt I had that high that real that high that they oxytocin high that they talk about that I had that and I was just like oh look at my baby isn't he the most beautiful baby I'm so lucky I was just I was just over the moon and Sarah waited until after he was born and then she came back to the ward with us and she took all these photos and then she came back the next day when my daughter came to the hospital and she took all these photos of my daughter meeting my son and it was just she was just she helped that was really healing for me because I might not have got the exact birth that I wanted but I had all the moments and all the feelings that I wanted and I was treated like a human most of the time. Yeah. And um, I, che- I did check myself out of hospital after two nights. So my first night was the night he was born and then I stayed one more night and then I left <laughs> <laughs> because I didn't want to be in hospital because it was a public hospital. My husband couldn't stay with me and so it was really – it was really hard to be in a hospital bed and try and grab the baby yeah. out of the cot and I was on my own so most of the time because he couldn't stay with me. So You get more support at home in some cases, yeah. Yeah, and um, the only the, – and the reason that I checked myself out is because I had a no, – I think she – Excuse me, I think she was a nurse and they wouldn't she wouldn't take my catheter out and so I couldn't get up until she took my catheter out. And it was the next day and she kept saying, You need to drink and pass you need to pass so much urine before we can take the catheter out. And I was like, just take it out. And she's like, No. I'm like, take it out, please. And she's No, I'm not taking it out until you pass like I think it was like one and a half liters of urine or something. So I said to my husband, see that one litre bottle over there, fill that up, I'm going to drink that now. And I drank it and I filled that stupid bag up. (laughs) And then I was like pressing the buzzer continuously, that bag's full, can you take it out now? (laughs) And so she took it out (laughs) and I was like, thank you. And so, and then I was like, I realised that um, there was a lot less structure to the way the midwives and the nurses were on the maternity ward sometimes you might have a midwife sometimes you might have a nurse and so I wanted to go home because when I had a midwife it was fine but when I had a nurse not fine yeah so it's very different um, yeah and it's not probably not anything against the nurse herself personally but just different care and I just wanted to go home so we left and they kept saying to me, um, you you really need to stay for three to five days. And I was like, no, thank you. I was going home. 
And it's so not true anyway, because everyone, like everyone's circumstances are different and everyone heals at different rates too. And I mean, I know they can't change their policies and make it an individualized approach for each person, but you know, it's not the end of the world. If someone feels like they're going to have more support at home, then we should be supporting them in that decision. Exactly. And I knew that my midwife was doing all my postnatal care. I actually left the hospital before she'd even been able to come and see me at the hospital. <laughs> she'd had an, um, car- she didn't come back the night he was born and then she had to go to another birth. So she came to check on me the next day and I'd already gone home. So it'd been 24 hours and a bit since he'd been born. And she's like, I was really surprised you went to hospital. I'm like, oh, sorry. My husband was supposed to send you a text message. We're at home. Because she texts me, she's like, where are you? I'm like, I'm at home. Where are you? She's like, I just went to your room and you're not there. I'm like, oh, sorry. And so I wasn't worried about all that postnatal stuff because I knew that she would be taking care of me. And um, I did have to sleep sitting up when I for the first few nights because obviously laying flat and then not being able to get up with a C-section is really hard. But the pain was so much less the second time around. The first time around, it was overwhelming. That was what my focus was on. But the second time around, it just didn't feel as painful. It just didn't feel – I mean, I knew I'd had surgery and obviously I had different pain because I had um, all the bruising on my tummy and then the muscle pain from being in labour <laughs> on top of the surgical pain from having the surgery. But in general, it was – um, a lot less painful the second time. Yeah, and you were dealing with a lot less emotional baggage as well. Exactly, and I was still on that high of like feeling like I had done the most incredible thing. And so it was great. And he was so chilled out. He had a tiny little bit of jaundice, but nothing to be like, we never went back to the hospital. My midwife kept an eye on him. And he was fine. She's just like, keep feeding him, you know, open the window, like open the blinds and make sure he's seeing the sun and, you know, don't obviously sunbake him, but <laughs> um, make sure he's getting lots of light. And and he was fine. And, yeah, he just kept, oh, he never, I think he lost the tiniest amount of weight and then he just stacked it on. He didn't wear any of his sister's clothes because he just was too big. And the clothes that I'd bought him thinking that I was going to have another tiny baby, never fit him. <laughs> he, because he didn't fit a four zero when he was born and then he just blew through three zeros to two zeros in like six to eight weeks. He was so chunky. Um, and yeah, so, and he's a super chilled out kid and super chilled out baby. And it was just such a different experience. And we were really um, firm with our boundaries about visitors. And so, the first week was just us and then we left it up to my parents to decide if they wanted to come first or second and then my in-laws came, I think, and then they left and then my parents came or might have been the other way around. But there was no overlap. It meant that I got staggered support as well. So instead of having everyone there for two weeks and then all gone, um, my parents, I think, came when he was about two weeks old and then my in-laws came and then they left and then they came back again and it was great. It was just much better and we were smart about it. And they, I don't know how my parents or his parents felt about that. I think oh, I think my mum was not as pleased 
as she, I think she would have liked to have been here when the baby was born. But it was it worked. Like as in we, I didn't feel um, unsupported, and also there was a lot of people around to focus on my daughter. So we never had very much, like very much if any of that sibling rivalry she was just fascinated by him from the moment that he was born and she calls him her baby and um, they are obsessed with each other they love each other so much and so yeah it was just it was great three years is such a great age difference I was just about to say we've got a similar age gap we've got four years between our girls and it's I love it it's so good it is so good. It's such a good gap because there's just no, as yet, we're in early days, but as yet there's no sibling rivalry. But there is the whole we have come on to the issue now of that's mine, give it back. <laughs> <laughs> not being able to share toys. But, you know, still that's kids. what it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I did get postpartum anxiety with him as well. And again, around the six-month mark. Were you hyper aware of that possibly happening? Like, were you kind of dreading that that could happen or were you kind of at peace with how things were going? It was a little bit of both. Like, it was in the back of my head and in the early days when he was first born, I definitely felt this feels so good and really worried that I might get anxiety again. Like, it sort of stressed me out because how I felt was the opposite of how I'd felt before. And so it was a completely different experience. And I kept waiting for the bottom to drop out, like if you will, like the other shoe to drop or whatever people say. Um, And it just sort of, so, and then as the weeks went on and that didn't happen, I think I got lulled into this false sense of security. And then it sort of, took me by surprise I got sick I got I got a cold or I like I had a physical physically got sick and it triggered the the difference with my anxiety this time is that in the past it had been outward like I had been fearful for the people around me dying and this time I was convinced I was going to die and that was a really much more terrifying debilitating experience so my husband works away sometimes or a lot of the time and um, so I'd gotten sick and I could feel that something wasn't right because I was hyper-focused on my physical body. I think in particular it was my mouth and my throat and like obsessively checking in the mirror, looking in the mirror, taking photos with my phone and that felt wrong, like like it felt like not a reasonable thing to be doing but I couldn't put it into words and then I got more irritable and then I got short, short like my temper became shorter, like I got eat more easily agitated or aggravated and then my husband was away for work one day, one night and I end up sitting on the, I'd gotten the kids to bed and I'm sitting in the kitchen on the floor on the phone to him telling him that he needed to come home because I was going to die before the kids woke up and there wouldn't be anyone here to look after the kids. And I was just hysterical and um, terrified and also scared of leaving the house. That's the other thing that happened. I slowly, I'm I'm not a go out into the world once you've given birth kind of person. I'm a hibernate kind of person. And so I slowly get back out there. But around that five or six month mark, I noticed that I slowly became less involved. I wanted to leave the house less to the point where I just stopped leaving the house. 
if I could just, and I wouldn't leave the house for five, six, seven days at a time. And I would like, my husband would take my daughter to daycare and he would pick her up and I wouldn't, I would um, order the shopping online and he would pick it up from the shops. And if I did go anywhere, it would be to the supermarket or the post office. And then I would come home again. I didn't, I wouldn't go and meet my friends for coffee they would come and see me but they thought they were coming to see me because I had a baby and I had the kids and it was easier for them to come to me but really they were coming to see me because I wouldn't leave the house I was telling people and people didn't know what they didn't know like how seriously do we take you because you're not saying you want to kill yourself you're saying you think you're going to die so that's different and um they don't know what to do with that information. So I, it, most people brushed it off. They thought like I was, it felt like they thought I was just exaggerating or, you know, uh, a bit tired and a bit emotional and just a bit like hormonal is the, like a word that got thrown around a lot. And, um, you know, my family's not very good. My, like my parents and stuff, they're not good. At that kind of stuff and my um, husband's family um, they're not good at talking about things <laughs> so it was really isolating it was more isolating than the first time around because the first time around I didn't know what was happening so it was really hard for anyone to say but I had lots of people around me and the second time we lived was just us in our house the second time around. The first time when we had our daughter, we lived in um, a house with my um, girlfriend's partner and she was so she was around a lot because he lived with us and um, my husband's cousin lived with, like we all lived together. In a, we had a really big house and so there was people around all the time. So even though I wasn't leaving the house, I was still seeing people and people were still seeing me. And everybody knew something was off, but nobody knew what it was. This time, it was just me and my kids in my house and my husband. And it was it was scarier this time because I didn't know, I couldn't rationalise. So last time the thing that we had talked about I had talked about with my psychologist was rationalizing like is that a reasonable thought to have have you had any reason to think that thought like to give weight to that thought any more than you would give weight to a passing thought like oh look at that cloud like has someone called you and told you your husband's had an accident is your daughter actually sick you've taken her to the doctor what did the doctor say the doctor said she was fine so there was a way of rationalizing through that that I couldn't do with this because even though the doctor would say you seem fine, you're, if you're telling yourself that you're sick, your body creates those symptoms. And because I was so stressed and so anxious, I was doing things like grinding my teeth in my sleep and clenching my jaw, which was biting my tongue and biting my cheek in my sleep. So my mouth, it was particularly focused around my face, my mouth, my neck, my throat. Um, and so. I would, I did have physical symptoms because when I was asleep, I was biting my cheek in my tongue, which is a thing that people do when they grind their teeth. They catch the sides of their mouth and the sides of their tongue in between their teeth. So I did, but nobody explained that to me. I went to the dentist because I thought I must have had cracked teeth, but he, 
um, he did an examination. He goes, no, you just have really excessively tight um, muscles around your jaw. And so he offered to prescribe me Valium. And I was like, um, I don't think you can take that when you're breastfeeding, can you? And he's like, oh, no. Okay, well, I don't know. Maybe get a mouth guard. And so eventually I went back and saw my psychologist but it took um, – it didn't take as long to go away. It was a really awful six months. And then sort of by the new year, things had changed again. And it got to the point where my mother-in-law would come and stay with me every time my husband went away for work because I was afraid of being alone. And she was amazing. It actually really um, made our relationship better. She, be, she, she feels like someone I can trust and someone I can rely on. So that's been a really nice um, like side or what do you call it, like payoff of having to go through this is that we, I feel like we've become quite close and um, the ki- and the kids loved that as well and she loved being around the kids. So it was great for everyone and she didn't really have to do anything. She just needed to be here. And then... Um, Yeah, time, unfortunately. I got offered some prescription medication, anti-anxiety medication, but the more I read about it, the more I did not want to take it. Um, So I didn't take it. And then, um, yeah, it was just I actually have a really great GP and so I would go to him every time I felt sick and he would say to me, you're not dying, that's not what is happening here. And for some reason, the way that he would say that to me would work, would help, and I I would leave feeling better. And it got to the point where I would go in and he'd go, no, not today, you're not that lucky. And it just it just would, I don't know why, because if you normally, if someone else had said that to me, I would have been like so offended, you're not taking me seriously. But I I guess because I knew that he knew what was happening and um, he would check me and he would go, no, you're fine. And then, yeah, then he would start saying, not today, you're not that lucky. And and that sort of helped. And then, yeah, just I, get, I, I don't know what changed. but And then I got a mum friend actually and that changed. But I don't know what changed in my head. But having a mum friend, my next-door neighbour and I became really good friends. It was people who hadn't lived there previously and she had two little ones that are roughly the same age as or in the same age groups as both of my kids and we just connected and then because we lived next door to each other, we just lived in each other's pockets and it was just like that connection with someone who understood what I was going through. Yeah, that makes such a difference. It does, it really does and my girlfriends are amazing but... Like I said, the only ones who had kids didn't live here and the girlfriends that I had here in Perth with me didn't have kids. And so they just, as much as they loved me and as much as they wanted to support me, they just could not, they couldn't give me that connection that I was craving. Yeah, and you you also feel guilty leaning on them because you don't want to burden them with something that they're not they're not in that world. They don't have to deal with that yet, you know. Exactly. And sometimes it's really hard to explain to someone who is, you know, who might look at you and think, "Oh, well, you're not at work and how great would that be?" and 
you know, oh, you didn't get out of your pyjamas. Gee, I wish I could just stay at home in my pyjamas all day. And it's like, no, actually, I haven't showered for three days. And um, I feel like my world does not exist outside of these four walls. Like, come and save me. And obviously no one can save you. You have to save, like, no one can do that for you. You have to find find a way to do it for yourself. But the things that help were connection with another mum and knowing that I wasn't the only one who felt the way I felt was just immensely gratifying. Like I can't and we're such good friends now and our kids are such good friends and it's just, yeah, it, cha- it she changed my life. Her and my mother-in-law, they changed that part. That part of my story could have gone really differently if they if those women hadn't been there and they were just there like that's just it they were just there you know you don't have to do anything grand it's just being there no and um, my next door neighbor and I we would just alternate between each other's house and we'd just let the kids loose and we'd just sit on the lounge and drink tea and eat chocolate and you know like that's not world changing but just well, just knowing that you're not alone and that you're fighting it out with someone else, you know, and someone you can be open and honest and transparent with and go, this is shit. Like there's some days that I don't enjoy being a parent, you know. Yes. And if you say that to people who don't have kids, as much as they might go, oh, yeah, it looks hard, especially if um, they've wanted kids and couldn't have kids or they want to have kids but they haven't had them yet, they go, oh, it can't be that hard. Hmm. And I also got a little bit, well, you wanted to have kids. Yeah. So this is the kind of what you signed up for. And yeah. to me, that's like saying to someone, well, you're not a, not allowed to complain about your bad work day because that's completely socially yeah. acceptable to say, I had a really shit day and I hate my job today. But if a mum says that or a parent says that, it's like, oh, my God, how could you say that about your kids? Like you signed up for this. Yeah. This is what you you should be okay with having people spit food on you and vomit on you and like you know no that's not okay some days it's really shit and (laughs) having that connection was just changed it changed everything and yeah and now like I said it only lasted about six months this time which has been a completely different experience to last time it took about 12 months to to come out the other side the first time so now since yeah this year has been really great (laughs) oh that's so good yeah so that's it that's a lot that is a lot sorry if I've gone on no not at all (laughs) (laughs) not at all I think it's it's a really good perspective to put out there because I feel like there's often a a theme amongst v-back stories in that um, having a vaginal birth after a cesarean is like the gold standard and that's the only way that you can heal the trauma from your previous birth, which is just not the case, you know, and it's so different for everyone. And it just really goes to show how different the outcome can be when you just feel in control. Like when I think about your story, I have a big theme of control, you know, and yeah. it was so much better for you the second time round because you felt like you were you were behind the steering wheel and it was your yeah. choice and you were informed and you were able to flex your muscles when you felt like they were needed and then concede when you felt like you needed to and you weren't forced yeah. down any fork in the road unwillingly. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And that, I think that was probably a little bit what I struggled with and especially what my husband struggled with was the whole that the only way to be to have a good birth after you'd had a C-section was to have a VBAC. And if you didn't get a VBAC, well, then you failed again. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to say, like, why I wanted to talk to you because even though it wasn't what I was aiming for and would I have loved to have delivered vaginally? Of course I would have. For many reasons, one of them not having to recover from surgery would be wonderful. But I had a wonderful birth with my son and I felt that high and I felt that oxytocin rush and the connection that I felt to him immediately. And that's, I think, um, that might have been something I didn't mention to you. I didn't bond with my daughter until she was about three months old because I just didn't feel connected to her. I knew she was mine and I knew that I had to take care of her. But I did not feel that overwhelming love. That took that took a good two to three months. And then it did kick in one day and one day I just looked at it and I just got this rush of love and then that was it. And, like, I'm, I'm obsessed with her now. Like, I follow her around the house telling her that, like, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. Like, if you leave me, I'm going to follow you to university and if you travel, I'm coming too. And so it's, it, it's there now but initially – it wasn't there and I put that down to the way she that I had her, not because I had a C-section but because I had a traumatic birth and I had so many drugs in my system that I didn't know what I was feeling. There was no way I could have connected with her because I was that pumped full of drugs. Like It's not, it's not how our kids enter the world that informs how we feel about our births. It's about what happens in the moments leading up to their births that informs how we feel about it. You know, and if you are informed and you're given control and you feel in control of your experience, it ultimately doesn't matter at the end of the day how they enter the world because like you experienced the flip side of, you know, both sides of this coin in that the second birth you felt in control and it was the same mode of birth you know yeah exactly it's just a different way of being treated and also um being like you said being in control and also being respected like I feel like um the people who were part of my medical care were willing to like they wanted to listen to what I thought most of them a couple of them didn't, but, you know, that midwife wasn't great and the doctor that refused to admit me to the ward, that was really, really shit. But other than that, they were interested in my opinion and they were willing to go with me trusting my body and that made such a difference to, like you said, me feeling in control and that made such a difference to how I felt about my son and how I felt about myself and how I felt about how, like, giving birth. And it's just been such a different experience and healing in some ways, but also just it's completely different. So I don't even really say that most of the time because it just is a different experience and it's just changed the way I think about what happened with my daughter. It it did give me permission to go, that wasn't your fault. I think at, at the end of the day it all comes down to how informed you are really because if you had not have been informed um, on your choices and rights in your second birth, it, it may have ended up the same as your first one. Yeah, exactly. And that is sad to think that if you're not informed, then they'll just 
do whatever they want. They won't pay attention to you. But you have to to think that you have to be really assertive and really um, know what you're talking about. That's that's not that doesn't speak well of our medical system. Oh, definitely not. And especially especially with VBACs, like you've really you've really 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 got to want a VBAC to to really achieve it you know because you you do you have to be prepared to go into fight unfortunately and, and that's not really the mindset you need to be in when you're no. about to give birth either <laughs> like, yeah you're meant to be letting go and relaxing not tensing up and getting ready to battle you know exactly yeah so but you know that that is the reality of it so that would be my takeaway and if we go again if we have another baby that is my takeaway. The more information I have, the more power I have. Yep, definitely. So, I think that that's a really good note um, to pass on to everyone who listens as well. Whether you're attempting a VBAC or not, I think it goes for all all births, really. Yes, I would agree with that because, unfortunately, our medical system is not designed to take care of women. It's designed to get babies out of women by whatever means necessary and it's not great but it's, it's actually really terrible but we have to arm ourselves with that knowledge so that we can be our own best advocate yeah definitely oh is there anything else that you wanted to mention about your your two births and your your journey I'm I am in a much better place now and I actually am studying to be a doula because I feel so strongly about birth now. Like I'm, obs- I really am like becoming a birth nerd and I, I just want to be able to be a part of changing the way that women are treated when they give birth. And that, that starts with empowering women so that they know what their options are and they know what their choices are so that they know they have a choice. The amount of women that don't know, like I was one of them that don't know you have a choice and an option to say no, like we have to have that information. That's how we'll change the system from the inside out, from women pushing back saying that you're not doing that to me. I am not okay with that. So if I can if I can be a part of that, then that's what I want to do. And doulas are so important because even women who do know or people who do know that they can say no, it, the um, hospital system isn't an environment which is conducive to you saying no. Like it's hard to say no even when you know that you can. Exactly. Having someone by your side who is that just that one step removed who can step in and help you get the courage to do what it is that you want to do because it's really hard not to get stuck under the thumb of the – authority of the system exactly and I think that's why I think when I think back to um the point in time where they were like well you can go home or you can wait for the shift change if we'd have had that that person with us like that a doula with us she would have given us that perspective and um you know when I think about how terrified we were of my daughter being born and not surviving again a doula probably would have given us that perspective that hey you know what they've said everything's okay and if somebody had said that to us that might have changed how scared we were about things I don't know it would have changed the outcome I'm not gonna I'm not suggesting that the outcome would have been different necessarily and I think especially with my son 
probably would have ended up in the same place anyway. If if he'd have gotten that stuck, I don't think he was going to get unstuck. And he's very stubborn now. So my, my hunch is that he just got in the wrong spot and it just would have been really difficult to get him out any other way. Um, but a doula probably would have given us that perspective to go home and then come back and get some rest. My husband could have got some rest. And, you know, that person that's there for you, um, not for you to have the baby but just to be your emotional support, that is probably what was missing for us because we didn't have family with us. We didn't have any other friends with us. So that, yeah, that felt like a, a lack, like a, a missing piece. And so I'm really keen to, um, when I'm finished my course, to, to be that missing piece for people so that they know what they're capable of and they know what they're entitled to and they can make decisions that they want to make that they're comfortable with that, you know, they wouldn't wouldn't get to make if they didn't have that information. So it has had lots of positive outcomes. It's been really good thus far. And then if we go back again, <laughs> which I hope we do, but I'm not sure what happens from this point because to – Two caesareans is even more difficult to find someone who will get on board with a vaginal birth. So, well, that's the problem. I mean, it's definitely possible physiologically, you know, from from the mother's perspective. But to find someone who is willing um, to support you in that can be can be difficult, but not impossible. And I'm so glad that you are doing this podcast. Like, I was listening to other birth story podcasts and. I got really sad because the story that is out there is if you have a cesarean, everyone feels like a failure and no one's sitting there going, everyone's saying you're not failing, but no, but nobody who's having the cesarean is sitting there going, I didn't fail. There's very few stories where the women are going, hey, I succeeded. I did what I wanted to do and I felt empowered. And you're giving a voice to all the women who's, stories don't fit in that little chocolate box of you know I got the perfect birth and I'm so happy for women who get the perfect birth but that's not most of us yeah and it's so I think it's so important for people in in positions like yours to hear other stories so that they know that they're not alone and so that they can resonate with and just feel connected to a story you know to to someone else's story and have their experience validated in a sense absolutely so thank you because you're doing a wonderful thing oh thank you truly wonderful thing (laughs) thank you for coming on and telling your story oh thank you for having me sorry for going for so long no don't be (laughs) silly (laughs) a lot to get through but thank you for listening it feels really good to share my story with you and to if it if another woman listens and she can have an empowered c-section then more power to you sister it's just an amazing thing if you feel in control of your experience yeah definitely it makes all the difference yeah thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode please feel free to share your thoughts with me by leaving a comment review or rating on your preferred podcast platform 
You can also engage with me on my business page on Instagram at lifeendlens underscore photography and on Facebook by the same name. If you know of someone who may be interested in telling their story here, or if you yourself would like to, please get in touch. I have a submission form which can be found by following the link in my bio on Instagram. Otherwise, you can Google my business name and get in touch with me via my website or email.